Welcome to the NutraCast, a production by Nutra Ingredients USA. I'm Danielle Masterson. Thank you for joining me here on the NutraCast, where we talk and share insights from inside the nutrition industry. The pandemic has changed the mindset of many, with people beginning to value their time more than ever. As a result, people are leaving their jobs in search of more money, more flexibility, and more happiness. With millions of workers saying, I quit, there are labor shortages, only adding to the ongoing supply chain disruptions. And this workforce turnover could be impacting quality within the dietary supplement industry. Here to discuss how to keep quality intact is Ed Wizumela, Director of Customer Engagement at the USP Verification Program. Hi, Ed, and welcome to the NutriCast. Thanks, Danielle. Thank you for having me. So before we get into the quality control stuff, Tell me about the USP Dietary Supplement Verification Program. USP has been verifying for the past 20 years, and the program is designed to be an all-encompassing program that starts out with GMP auditing of the manufacturing locations, assessing the product by looking at their testing specifications, making sure that all of those procedures are being properly followed to ensure quality, and then it's followed up with testing at USP's laboratories to ensure what's on the label is in the bottle. And so what are you seeing? How would you describe the state of the dietary supplement manufacturing industry right now? The state of the dietary supplement manufacturing industry right now is extremely challenged. There's a lot going on. You know, we have major supply chain issues where we see shortages of certain materials and surges in consumer demand. We see a high level of staff turnover within the manufacturing space. So we are seeing a lot of people moving on especially in the areas of, you know, you know, people working in the production areas, you know, they've seen a lot of turnover in those spaces. And really, what does that have as it relates to the impact on quality GMP compliance? And it really is causing manufacturers to, to reassess things. You know, they've had a very, very interesting ride through the pandemic where we've seen the industry see significant growth and higher demand, but also the challenges with, you know, making sure your staff was properly equipped to deal with COVID, you had proper separations within manufacturing locations to ensure the safety of the staff. And then also, again, this this great resignation that's gone on too, where you've lost a lot of people in manufacturing that lose a lot of knowledge and can definitely also impact the overall quality of business. Mm -hmm. How have the current events in the past year affected the industry? Is it all COVID or is it at least somewhat related to COVID? It's definitely been related to COVID. COVID has been the great disruptor, a wide variety of areas. You know, it's been great for the dietary supplement industry. We've seen double digit. We've seen, you know, from the industry's perspective, a lot of new consumers joining and buying into the supplement space. So it's been good for business as a whole from the market side. There have definitely been challenges, you know, keeping up with that demand. Again, when you have lower production, you might have to find secondary manufacturer just to keep up with certain product categories. So we've seen a lot of this in, in certain market segments around like gummies, for example, where the market's boomed, but, you know, the ability to keep up with the demand has, has, has definitely been exacerbated and trying to find and qualify and, and source from a new supplier creates its own unique challenges for any good quality system. Again, the supply chain issues, those have also been exacerbated by COVID as well. You know, it's opened up a lot of a, a lot of new things where when the demand is high and you can't get materials, especially in working with a very diverse and global supply chain. It's caused a lot of issues, I think, for manufacturers to get their materials in. How do you deal with potentially needing to find secondary manufacturers? 
as well as looking to find ways to get the product to your customer. So, you know, the products on the store shelves are, are available for that increased consumer demand. So you mentioned shipping delays and some of these transportation issues and ultimately disrupting the supply chain. What about secondary suppliers of materials within the dietary supplement industry? You know, it's interesting because, again, a lot of those challenges that we've seen, you know, have have been due to shortages, again, tied to COVID. If you look at what China's going through, again, with the major shutdown that you've seen within Shanghai alone, there's a ton of manufacturers that are going to be disrupted in each of these localized shutdowns as they deal with COVID over in China. We definitely saw this again, too. They just had the Olympics over there. They did this in 2008 during the Olympics where they shut down certain manufacturing sectors which can also exacerbate a, you know, a complex and, and strange supply chain already. So, you know, that, that, that's a challenge. And finding a good secondary manufacturer we know is, is something that is a industry challenge. How do you qualify a, a, a new manufacturer when you can't go to China to potentially perform an audit? Or you know, we know the industry itself struggles around the issue with setting proper specifications. It's the number one cause of warning letters still today, you know, since the GMPs were passed and everybody's needed to be compliant for 12 years, when you look at 483s, this is still the number one citation that we see. And then we have a secondary concern too, is, you know, with with these secondary suppliers, you know, do you know what you're looking for? If you're not setting your specs right, or you don't know what economic adulterants to look for, you do have the potential challenges that cause major issues in the marketplace. We've seen this before when the supply chain's been taxed in different areas and economic adulteration creeps in. And I'd like to say it's not just a dietary supplement alone issue, but it's definitely tied from food to pharma and any other industry probably goes through similar challenges. But when we look at it from a USP perspective, all of the issues that we've seen with melamine contamination in pet food and baby formula or DE. G and glycerin finding its way into to toothpaste suppliers, or the issues that we saw with, with heparin in 2009, all of those types of issues come again when you see economic adulteration and people trying to find materials and maybe not qualifying or testing and setting the right specifications you know, in, the, in those markets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ed, I mean, the FDA did acknowledge it inspected fewer dietary supplement facilities in fiscal year 21. The agency also said its compliance activities resulted in 111 warning letters, over 1,200 import refusals. They filed three injunctions. They had a seizure, and there were also 22 criminal convictions. That was fiscal year 21. I mean, how does that compare to other years? You know, it's definitely down. I mean, again, you still have a lot of travel constraints, travel restrictions. So it really is incumbent upon, you know, manufacturers to be testing and setting those specifications, you know, especially for the raw material supply chain issues. I always like to say, too, when you have it, when you have an issue and you have to find new suppliers to help to deal with your demand, that creates a a very unique challenge that, you know, how, how do you deal with that? And it really the only way to do it right now is through the proper testing protocols that are out there and looking for known adulterants that could be a potential contamination concern. There's always also another issue too is, again, the cost of shipping is higher. So the cost of raw material production is higher. Well, how does that then translate into, you know, you know producing a product that the consumer also has certain challenges that they have to deal with, whether it's inflationary issues or higher fuel prices, you know, again, going to the grocery store costs more and then you have a higher strain on pocketbook. 
when you have to make those decisions, you know, again, these costs are all being ramped up accordingly through higher cost of raw materials, higher cost of shipping. And it just, I think, opens up the door for the need for increased diligence around looking for economic adulterant factors. What would you suggest that manufacturers can do to ensure that quality control measures are being met even during times like this, during this high staff turnover? I think with high staff turnover too, you have, you definitely have issues. It really comes back into how do you train the staff? You know, if you have new people who are coming in at a fairly regular basis, anybody who's working in production or in the laboratory staffs at manufacturers or even contract laboratories, what type of training have they gone through? So I think the need for increased diligence around making sure that the staff are properly trained Even something as simple as someone in production who is in charge of watching the machine, doing in-process testing for the batch records, making sure that they know what they're understanding and what they're doing is critical. If you bring in new lab staff, making sure that they understand how to properly qualify and test the materials. And at the end of the day, it really comes back to the core competency of USP, which is writing and developing monographs which are essentially specifications. So, you know, when you're doing the testing, you're actually assessing the materials properly even before the production begins. On the other hand, I mean, let's look at it from an employee standpoint. What can employers do to retain workers? You know, of course, the pandemic, we can blame for kickstarting the worker shortage, but what does this say about employers who can't retain their workers? You know, and especially in manufacturing, you do have a lot of people that, For one, you know, these weren't what I would consider to be extremely high paying jobs. These were jobs anywhere between that, you know, eight to maybe 12 to 15 hours job. A lot of those people can take another job and be making more money at a, you know, in a warehouse somewhere at a distribution center, even in fast food, the the ability now for those places to now start charging 15 hours an hour, or $20 an hour for, Mm -hmm. for labor definitely has put a challenge on. So that's going to also increase the cost of production because you're going to have to pay more in order to one, find good staff and then retain them. And there's, there's a cost to training and that cost is really into how do you retain that staff to keep the continuity so you don't have those types of quality disruptions, you know, in in an area like dietary supplements where those people can be very, very essential to, you know, the impact of what is a good product and what's a bad product, even if it's a great facility with the best equipment. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. What are some examples of quality issues that have happened in the past due to supply chain disruptions or lack of proper protocols or being short on staff? I I look at it from an economic side. One, you know, I, I would say, make sure you're doing the testing properly. And we saw this in when we had the issues around melamine contamination in pet foods and in, in infant formula. And there was a lot of concern around things like amino acid testing, especially protein testing. And we know we've seen a lot of contamination of certain protein sources with either cheap amino acids being dumped into spike from an economic adulterant perspective. And it really goes back to how do you test those products? And if you're just using a general nitrogen test, something like melamine would show up in there. So that, that's, that's one issue that you have to look for now to say, you know, is there a cheap adulterant coming in? And two, how do, you, how do you really know? And this is one of the challenges that contract manufacturers have. They deal with vitamins, minerals. They deal with protein powders, potentially. They're dealing with complex botanical materials, probiotics and enzymes, which present their own unique challenges. And if you don't really understand the materials you have coming in, 
And these are very complex. Again, the challenges around qualification of botanicals looks a lot different than the qualification of a probiotic blend, which looks a lot different than a vitamin mineral premix test. So making sure I think that you understand the materials that you're sourcing. And also if you don't understand, maybe just not the opportunity to try to figure it out now. And you may you know, have to pass up certain pieces of business in order to make sure you're not also interjecting the potential for a lower quality product than your, your manufacturing company or your brand is worth taking. Yeah. I mean, just thinking about, for instance, last summer, FDA sent Amazon a warning letter specifically calling out sexual enhancement and weight loss products that were drug tainted for sale on its platform, the majority of which were marketed as dietary supplements. How can manufacturers signal to consumers that their products adhere to these safe manufacturing practices that you're talking about today? You know, the first thing is, I think when you look at the issues around erectile dysfunction, contamination with PDE5 inhibitors or or weight loss materials being spiked with other pharmaceutical actives, this is an issue that's been going on way before COVID. So when you look at those types of categories of products, I think any retailer right now should really be very, very focused on some type of qualification testing from accredited laboratories before they even decide to sell one of those products on their shelves. It's a major concern. It's a major problem. And it continues to damage the brand reputation of dietary supplements, I think, with consumers, because it's a very big lightning rod that if you do the testing, you'll probably find it in those particular categories. So retailers are definitely being more due diligent, I think, in that space. You see it with Amazon with some of their program requirements for testing. You're seeing even quality requirements now being done by players like CVS and Walgreens as well to Mm -hmm. understand, to test what's on the shelf. So they're trying, I think, to get something so they can enhance that brand reputation with consumers. It, it, it asks more though of the manufacturer. The manufacturer now has to go through and have additional testing that they have to be able to provide the retailer in this space, which also now is additional time and additional cost. So that cost piece, I think that is it's starting with the supply chain. It's going into the increased shipping costs to get material from a harbor in China to, you know, to the West Coast, that cost has gone up exponentially. You know, again, the cost to pay workers more, the cost to deal with additional testing to pacify retailer requirements is all going in. And now you have that price point where when does the cost of the materials or the cost of the finished dietary supplement go up to the consumer? And again, with the consumer having challenges with, you know, increased inflationary issues, increased fuel prices, you know, what's the price point where some of these products are going to be a a need to have, which I think a lot of the consumer spike that we've seen during COVID has been generated around health and wellness to a nice to have if I have the extra money. And does, do we see some type of regression of the marketplace in the next couple of years? I was just going to ask, are you seeing prices go up? Are they being passed down to the consumer yet? You're seeing it a little bit, but not, not to a level that, that, that you'll need to see just due to the increased cost. I think that'll be around GMP compliance and other, other needs for manufacturers to make sure that they're testing for these additional requirements and having due diligence to look for economic adulteration. There's always a concern when you know that you have some of the biggest issues we've probably seen in the last 40 years from inflation and and cost and and what people are able to pay and what they're getting for their dollars. And for me, that always says, you know, if if you're a manufacturer, you're an unscrupulous manufacturer, 
you know, do you, do you send something out that's at below 100% of label claim, knowing that, you know, again, you've, you've seen less enforcement, you see less issues that would necessarily drive someone to worry about it, but that's a way that you keep your price point to, to sell at a consumer shelf. That's an economic adulteration issue that's not, you know, with a, you know, a potentially dangerous product, but it is something that could stifle consumer, you know, consumer confidence within the dietary supplement space. Yeah, definitely. And grab your crystal ball. Do we know how long this workforce shortage is expected to last? If you were to ask me today, I would say that we're going to see this disruption probably take two to three years to, to settle out. But there's a lot of outside issues that can still have a great impact. You know, we know that the supply chain is, is being stretched and been strained. And what does that look like? So from, from, from that perspective, that's going to still take some time. I think we're starting to see shipping get a little bit better. But now we've seen the COVID spike in China. If those COVID spikes maybe continue, you know, those are going to have repercussions that will be felt months down the road from where we're even at today. So I think two to three years there, you're still going to have the issue with workers wanting more money. You know, if, 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 you're, if you're looking at the need to raise a minimum wage, you know, and basically look at it now at not $8, but maybe at something maybe closer to, you know, 15 or 20, once the genie's out of the bottle, it's really hard to get it back. And there really is not just in the supplement space, but in the full economic picture, the ability for people to pay more and the need for them to pay more if they want to get good qualified workers there. So that's going to continue to be exacerbated again over the next couple of years. But then I think it's going to still be there, you know, five, six years down the road. You're not going to go back to a pre-COVID level and that that should be expected. Yeah, I don't think anybody's expecting that. What's the latest from the USP verification program? What's on your plate? Any news or updates that you'd like to share? You know, some of the big things that we talked about too, I think with like Amazon, CVS and Walgreens, you know, is they're looking to, you know, find ways to enhance the programs that they have to ensure consumer confidence around dietary supplements. What we've seen is, you know, they're accepting the full USP requirements and our testing and our auditing programs as to basically check all the boxes for them. We think that that's a very important step, you know, for the brands that we work with through verification and with it being a voluntary program. But we also think it's also a great way for us still, I think, to enhance consumer confidence. You know, what we've seen too is just from our market and brand trackers, we see that consumers are looking at about 70% of consumers in our brand tracker study look for a quality seal and mark. And if they know what it is, it's very important. We think that we have a a strong brand in, in, in that space. As well as the work that we do with, again, physicians and pharmacists and dietitians, we see a very, very high level of awareness of the mark when they're making recommendations saying to look for the mark. You know, we've seen JAMA publish a study talking in, about the poor quality around melatonin supplements, where they're either getting way too much or maybe nothing in some of the testing that they had performed and what they did for their research. But places like the National Academy of Sleep Medicine you know, they're basically saying, look for the USP mark when choosing a supplement. So you understand, you know, what you're getting and what's on the label is truly in the bottle. Yeah. Just speaking with researchers, it's my understanding that one to two milligrams at the most is what people should be taking, but you're seeing five to 10 sometimes and just one dose on these shelves at, you know, your local stores. And it really goes into some of the manufacturing. I mean, I always say, you know, gummies have boomed, but gummy manufacturing is a lot different than tablet and capsule manufacturing. And the ability to produce consistency definitely draws questions. And 
you know, that, that can be for multivitamins all the way down to something like a melatonin, making sure you have a good quality system managed properly. And that's what we do with verification. We're really looking at that whole process, making sure that, you know, quality is built into the product, not just tested into it at the end. You brought up a good point. I mean, gummies are so hard to formulate with. I mean, just talking with a lot of manufacturers, uh, especially those when it comes to CBD, it's so inconsistent and it's really hard. Even the, the best of the best companies who do all the due diligence, they still are inconsistent with their dosages. Absolutely. And it, 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 I always say, I always look at vitamins, for example, and it's like even something very, very simple, like a single vitamin, like a vitamin C gummy, there are challenges. When you add water, heat, and pH to vitamins, they do crazy things. And it definitely enhances, you know, how you have to project your overages, how, what are your manufacturing variabilities and how do you control those? And yeah, you say even some of the best companies in the space find, you know, they find challenges and, you know, the good ones will work through it, but there are a lot of new companies making gummies. And I look around going, do they know what they're really doing? Cause we don't work with them. We don't necessarily see you know, how some of these manufacturers are, are handling that process. So it's a, it's a challenge that needs to also be understood. It's not mm-hmm. just related to, you know, COVID issues, but quality is a, it's a continuing uh, pendulum that is really driven by the market and what consumer demand is. So something that's a, a fairly still new and growing novel delivery form compared to tablets, capsules, and soft gels, you know, again, understanding those challenges and working with the market to create standards and create testing procedures to help them out is definitely a core focus of what USP is about. Speaking of that, FDA recently came out with their budget proposal pushing mandatory product listing. Are you for that? We are. We, we would be for that. You know, I think that it's a very, very interesting thing. You know, in, in the proposal, FDA is saying there's between 50 and 80,000 products on the market. That's a huge variation. If it's 50, it's whatever. It's 30,000 product difference, but what they think is a low to a high is it, it shows, I think, that the, the agency really needs to get a better grasp of what's sold today. I think that if you talk to a lot of the key players in the marketplace, you know, that's definitely something that that they're for. So I think that it gives us the ability to at least know what's also on the market. So if you had to have some type of a listing, it would help. It would definitely help us too, from a USP perspective and forecasting what new monographs need to be developed. So when we look at it, we try to figure out, you know, what are we doing to make the best public health impact? to ensure the quality of supplements is at the highest and what consumers and physicians would expect. That would be a key piece for us, I think, is to also understand, you know, what, what, what is in the marketplace, you know, what, what, what products are really out there. And it's, it's hard to get a, to get a grasp today on, on what's on the marketplace. You know, the other part of in that FDA proposal for the budget is, again, I think some clarity to get rid of some of the products that are adulterated. There's just a lot of ambiguity and confusion of, how do you deal with something that's being spiked with pharmaceutical actives? So when we look at you know, the, you know, the issues around what Amazon's faced and other retailers have faced with contaminated ED or weight loss or even sports nutrition products, making sure that there is a, a path to removal of market, I think, is also critical you know, in enhancing that, you know, that, that the industry is self-policing and, and, the age, and working with the agency to get rid of these potentially dangerous products that are adulterated with pharmaceutical actives. Do you have any expectations? Do you think it'll pass? You know, we'll know if it's going to pass here, I think, you know, fairly shortly since it's tied to, to funding and, you know, funding expires on October 1st, I believe, for, for the federal government. So it'll definitely need to be in 60 days before. 
So I think we'll have a better picture if, if this language is going to you know, go through by, by late summer. But you know, I think you see a lot of industry groups that are in support of it. You definitely have a couple of the trade associations are for it. Some of them are not. But you know, I think at the end of the day, I think there's a lot of companies that are saying this, this makes sense. And it's the next step, I think, in the evolution of you know, what needs to be done just to you know, keep DSHA bolstered. And again, you have a regulation that was written in 1994. And that was definitely pre-internet marketing that, than what we see today. So it's one of the challenges in just keeping the legislative adaptive to where the market demand and how the, and how the products are brought to consumers today. Yeah, we'll have to keep our eye out for that DSHA 2.0. Yeah, it's definitely, it's in process. I mean, there's, there's definitely been a lot of work and a lot of great organizations, both from the industry side, patient-specific group side. That, that, that's working to make sure, you know, when it makes sense, it's, it, you know, it makes sense and it's not overly burdensome from, from, from an industry perspective. But when you start to do that, I would say it goes back to, you know, the manufacturer, the brand owners to now have to go through and do this on an annual basis. So it definitely is a, another burden that manufacturers or, or the brand owners are going to have to go through that they're not necessarily doing today. So it's, again, more time, more work making sure you have someone who's trained and is putting in the proper information for an annual registration is uh, it, it, it requires additional you know, time and expense from, from the brand owner side. It certainly does. But like we've been talking about this whole episode, it all comes down to consumer trust. Absolutely. The end of the day, this, this is about consumer trust. It's why we do USP verification. What it does is it gives consumers peace of mind. It helps, I think, the long-term health of the marketplace. It helps, again, Refortify a lot of those new consumers that have came in to be a new supplement consumer during COVID. You know, as they have challenges, we don't want to have product out there that is, again, poor quality, like we've seen, you know, 20 years ago, why we started verification, because a lot of products couldn't meet label claim. So if we start to see people cutting corners during what's going on right now to deal with all of the challenges, the USP verified mark is going to become something that as brands have to compete and consumer dollars are stretched further they're going to definitely want to know they're buying and sourcing a quality product for themselves and their families. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. Ed Wizumela from the USP Verification Program. Thank you so much for joining me here on the NutriCast. Thank you, Danielle. It was a great time talking with you today and I appreciate being on your show. If you like what you just heard, you could subscribe to the NutriCast wherever you get your podcast. You can also head to NutraIngredients-USA.com for even more Nutri-related content. Thank you for listening. I'm Danielle Masterson. As always, I'll catch you here on the NutriCast next week.